This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Hey guys, welcome to this week's roundup. There's some cool things to report on, as well as some awesome Q&As as usual. And then at the end, we have an interview with Chris Covell, one of the kind of the original contributors to a lot of the retro gaming stuff. Also, my band's booking a couple of small shows around the New York City area in the next month or so, and it would be awesome if anybody in the area wanted to treat it like a meetup. We'll all just hang out beforehand, drink a couple of beers, and talk about gaming and trade stuff if you have any. Um, but I'll just post more information on that when I have it, and let me know in the comments if that's something anybody would even be interested in. But I guess let's just jump right into the news. First up, I finally posted that review of the Toro that I had been promising. So for everybody that asks, I'm sorry it took so long, and I'm trying to catch up with all the stuff I've had to do on the website. And I'd really like to do a lot more of these, just because sometimes a page is great to have all this stuff listed, but you just can't demonstrate something without a video sometimes. Other times I think it's the opposite. Other times I think a quick two-minute video of, like, here's the thing, and then a page for reference is better, but... At least having both is kind of a help for everybody, so I'll try to stay on top of it and won't take so long to do the rest, um, but I'll put the link in the description for anybody that was curious who didn't see it yet. Last week, somebody posted a video on YouTube about how they got light guns working on flat-screen TVs. It's kind of a combo solution of using the Wiimote uh, to actually sense where on the screen the um, the thing you're trying to shoot is and then fooling the existing light gun into thinking that it sees it. So I, I'm really oversimplifying it. You got to check out the video if you're interested, but it was really neat and it completely kind of took it from a different perspective. Um, and I really think that this exact solution is a bit overcomplicated to, to actually sell. It's one step closer and it's something that maybe somebody can sell like a light gun, a generic looking light gun with a sensor bar. And then with kind of like um, the Bliss Box, just an adapter that would allow you to plug it into each console. And it would kind of just do the same thing that this guy does. So hopefully uh, ChipOS81 is his screen name. Hopefully he's already on top of that thinking about ways to sell it. Or maybe he could just contact Sean Green from Bliss Box and see you know, if their ideas are similar at all. But any way to get light guns working on flat screens, even if it's kind of cheating with the sensor bar is still good enough for me because you know I, I love sinking into a good game every now and then and killing some time but every now and then you just want to shoot stuff for 10 minutes and playing duck hunt or safari hunt or any of those games is just hilarious just you know shoot, shooting little 8-bit stuff across the screen and I just think it's something that's missing from a lot of games nowadays so hopefully this is one more step in the right direction, but if not, it was still a really cool video to watch, and uh, anybody that's into anything even remotely nerdy should check it out. And speaking of light guns, somebody uploaded a video that showed how they took a Nest Zapper and turned it into a laser gun. So it's not really gaming related, but it's really neat, so check out the video, and uh, just wanted to mention it really quickly. Kind of a sad update to another Metroid 2 remake, um, originally, they had, Nintendo had just issued a takedown request for the link to download the game uh, and uh, to one post on his blog. So it really was kind of fair, at least in my opinion. But now they just sent a takedown request for his personal email address. So now they're starting to go after him directly. 
which is not cool at all. I mean, they, you know, they really dropped the ball in the Metroid series. Um, here, you know, some guy comes out and does something better than they've done since Zero Mission, in my opinion. I mean, so 10 years now, plus. Um, and instead of embracing it and, and trying to, you know, maybe buy the project from him, use it, you know, have him license it, whatever, they just go after him. And I understand having to protect their IP. I mean, at the end of the day, they're a business. But still, this is not the way you treat people who, you know, who love your games and your products. So the only thing that we could do is keep sharing it and keep playing it and keep talking about it. Because, you know, I know the retro gaming community is a small part of what they have to cater to, but it's still a part. So if we just keep playing it, keep sharing it with everybody else, and keep talking about it, it is a big old middle finger to Nintendo. So... Really sorry to hear about it. Was really looking forward to you know a small update here and there. But anybody who has the latest version of it, all the bugs are fixed. There was only like two little ones anyway. Um, and the game is amazing. So uh, try to keep it alive just by keep playing it and talking about it. And hopefully Nintendo will get their heads out of their asses eventually. Some updates about the Game Boy Advance EverDrive. First, Crix has uploaded a new firmware that allows support for emulators, so you could play, like, Game Gear games on Game Boy Advance, which, you know, it's emulation, so it's not perfect, but kind of fun. Um, and all of those are actually already included in the Smoke Monster ROM set, so if you already have that, they're already right there. Um, and I think the firmware has a few bug fixes, minor things. And also, some of the people on the Crix forums have actually posted patches for Tilt games, so a few of the games that required the tilt sensor in the cartridge to work wouldn't work on the EverDrive, but now they do with just a simple patch. So uh, just wanted to keep everybody updated, and it's good to see that the scene keeps growing with every new EverDrive that he releases. In more Game Boy Advance news, Shmup's user Woozle has posted an update to his project, which is essentially a Game Boy Advance TV out project. He's able to output both RGB and HDMI directly, and he's been making some really great progress. Um, there were a few other pro uh, projects floating around for maybe a year or two now, probably more than that, and they've just never gained traction, and I think he's gotten farther than most of them. So it's looking like we might actually have a solution, whether it's a consoleized Game Boy Advance or you have to pull the board out and put it in a box, but a solution that, with a DVI connector that could output RGB, VGA, or HDMI in multiple resolutions with scan lines. So I'm really, really excited because there's a bunch of awesome Game Boy Advance games that translate really well to a big screen. So um, I'll keep everybody updated on the progress. If you want to check it yourself, you could follow the forum. Um, and I've been talking to him as well. I'm going to try to get him a stack of Game Boy Advances to experiment on. So uh, hopefully there'll be a lot more progress than that, and we'll all be able to buy one of these within a year or so. I just received an FDS stick this week, which is essentially like a ROM cart for the Famicom Disk System, um, and I will be doing a video on it this week, probably in a day or two, and it's not going to be like the Toro video. It really will be up um, quickly. I just wanted to mention it, because this thing is absolutely awesome, and it's cheap, and I'm way more impressed than I thought I would be with it. So uh, a full video review to come in a day or two, and I'll leave the link in the description for what exactly it does, but anybody that has a Famicom disk system might want one of these just to just to save the wear and tear on the drive itself so just figured I would throw that in here Brian from retro USB just uploaded a video about uh, how he tested lag on the AVS and other NES consoles so basically he added an LED light to a NES controller so that when you press the button and the command is received by the console 
um, the light goes on. So if you use a slow motion camera, you'll actually be able to see and count the frames of how long it takes for the person to actually jump. So he used this for testing both uh, the lag on his flat screens as well as the lag on the AVS itself. Um, and we had talked about that a lot last week uh, during his interview, and it was really cool to see it in action. So uh, I plan on building one of these soon enough and trying to use the same method myself. Uh, and even try comparing it to like the CRT stopwatch method just to see. But it was pretty neat, and um, I always love stuff like this, so I just wanted to share it. HD Retrovision just announced that their cables will be going back on sale September 10th at 6 p.m. Central Time. So they were able to get one small batch out a few months ago that sold out immediately. Um, so uh, I actually remember uploading the podcast a day early just to be able to get it up in time for people to know about these. So I'm not sure if this is a full stock now or if it's just another partial stock, but if you were waiting for one of these, I would definitely jump on it to make sure that they're not sold out. The Wall Street Journal just uploaded an article that claims that the Nintendo NX will use cartridges, just like it was rumored before. So the more I read about it, the more it almost seems like the true successor to the 3DS that can also be hooked up to a TV. So, um, you know, I'm, I'm keeping my hopes up, and I hope it's awesome, and I hope it uh, it's really exciting, but uh, it just, the more news you get about it, the weirder it gets. So um, I'll keep everybody updated with any real news, and uh, I'm sure something as big as the NX release would probably be all over the place, so I doubt uh, this podcast would be the first place you'd hear it, but I'll still put any news in that's actually solid, but... The Wall Street Journal at least has a little bit more credibility than a random gaming blog, so I just figured I'd mention it. One last quick thing before we get into the Q&A. Uh, I'm not sure if this is news or anything, I just wanted to talk a little bit about... I'm doing uh, Let's Plays, I guess that's what the kids are calling it these days, but of the game Axiom Verge. That's been out for a while, and it just came out on the Wii U last week. Um, and it's an awesome game, and I love it. But I've been trying to do both live streams and... Um, uh, like actually upload the gameplay videos to YouTube, but I'm trying to do it in a non-annoying way. So I really pride myself in the fact that like I don't tweet or post on Facebook unless it's important or it's you know just like hey the the update's live now or something. Um, but you know I don't want to spam people's inboxes, and I certainly don't want people to stop following me because I keep getting a pop-up every day saying you know live stream of Axiom Verge. So I kind of wanted everybody's feedback on that. Um, is it annoying to have the pop-ups? Should I disable that for the live streaming? Um, and, you know, it's not something I'll be doing a lot. It's just something I really wanted to try just to see what it was like. Uh, some people jumped on immediately when I was doing it the other day, and it was really cool. Um, but the first time I actually did it live, I had no idea I was live. I'd been practicing on Twitch all day, and I figured, all right, well, let me just use the multicast program and do both Twitch and YouTube at the same time. And when I did it, uh, a buddy of mine, like, I hit stream, and I'm walking around, kind of getting everything set up, and I get a text from a buddy of mine, like, oh, hey, I see your live stream's up, I'm watching. I'm like, what? What are you talking about? I didn't realize that YouTube sent the uh, auto email out to everybody saying they're live streaming now, so... Sorry, I kind of scrambled over and then had some major audio issues, uh, so I got all that fixed up. Um, but I just wanted everybody's feedback. You know, is it? Do you guys mind if that pops up? You know, a couple times a week. Um, does anybody want to see those? Uh, I mean, I personally like. I wouldn't jump in for a live stream unless it was something I knew I was going to interact in. You know, my buddies were on or you know, something I really wanted to see, but I would, and I very often do sometimes leave up the playthroughs because I have like two monitors up and 
I'll throw a playthrough on another one, and I'll kind of go, and oh, yeah, you know, I remember that part of the game. I missed that section. And it's kind of like listening to music in the background, but gaming, at least for me. So um, anybody's feedback on that. I just basically want to keep doing all the fun stuff I've been doing without annoying any of the people that have been supporting me. So uh, definitely leave me your thoughts. And um, if you're into Axiom Verge, I'm going to try to do a live stream once a day for like an hour until either I beat the game or I get bored of it and give up. So uh, I don't know. Let me know what you think. Now on to the Q&A stuff. Timothy Vreeland asks, If you're upscaling a 240p source to 1080p, wouldn't that distort and stretch the pixels, since 1080 isn't equally divisible by 240 like 480 and 720 are? Um, yeah, definitely. Um, and this is something that we can go into a really long discussion on, so I'm just going to give the very short, short version and then point you to the links on where to go if you'd like more info. But basically, um, that's where the FrameMeister really comes in handy and the Firebrand X profiles. Because, yes, it isn't equally divisible, and you get 4.5x where things are kind of stretched and weird looking. But with Firebrand X's profiles, you either have 4x, so there's a black bar all around the image, or 5x where it cuts off a little bit of the top and bottom. But that's actually okay in most cases because games back then were designed knowing that CRTs would cut off a little bit through overscan. So there really isn't usually too much super important information on the very top or very bottom, making it look pretty good. Um, but if you're talking simply about things like the AVS or, or even 480p games into 1080, it does get a little weird because then you're relying on your TV scaler to stretch it. Um, and that doesn't always look so great. You know, sometimes adding a, another scaler at the end of that, like the DVDO scalers or anything else, or I guess even a frame meister would help. Um, but it's really something that's not going to be as big a deal with 4K TVs because uh, the, you could integer scale right into 4K. But it's a good question, and um, I, I hope the short answer kind of pointed you in the right direction. And I'll post links um, below for the visual explanation, which I made in a, a fancy MS Paint drawing of, um, as well as the upscaler comparison page, which kind of goes into all of these things if you want more detail. So I uh, hope the short answer was good. I just didn't really want to sit here and ramble when there's other questions to get to. So sorry if I didn't really cover it. And speaking of the FrameMeister, Uzmaki82 said that he ordered a FrameMeister, but the max resolution of his HD TV is only 720p, and should he still use Firebrand X's profiles? Uh, so no, they're specifically designed for 1080p, and for the short term, just use the generic 720p setting on the FrameMeister, but Firebrand X is actually in the middle of designing 720p profiles for the same exact reason. So obviously just generic 720p will look fine because it's an integer of three or of 240 um, but there's still the overscan issues uh, keeping the pixels aligned perfectly which firebrand x is just awesome at that so um, i would definitely say it's good enough for now but when his pro 720 profiles come out definitely switch to using those you'll probably notice a big difference next daniel slocken asked that since there are so many HDMI mods for the Nintendo now, will there be any for the Super Nintendo coming up? And unfortunately, it doesn't look like anytime soon. I've been told that this is because the way Super Nintendo processes video is different than the Nintendo, so you're not easily able to get a digital output to convert right into HDMI as you would with a Nintendo. I was actually told that the more likely scenario would be an analog-to-digital converter, kind of like having an open-source CAN converter, but wired directly into the Super Nintendo. And I'm obviously oversim oversimplifying this just to 
keep it short, but um, unfortunately, I think it's a chance that we might not actually see an HDMI SNES mod at all until something like an FPGA-based SNES would come out. And that really... I mean, the SNES is my favorite system, so I would love an HDMI mod for it. It just doesn't look like anybody's started that project, or it's um, as easy as the NES. And I know the NES HDMI was not easy at all, but it, I think it would be way harder. So if I hear anything from anybody, even a rumor, I'll talk about it on the podcast. But for the short term, I really wouldn't expect anything, unfortunately. Next, Matthias Ferrero asked... Can you tell us how the FrameMeister and Open Source Scan Converter handle 720p from component? Well, first, the OSSC doesn't. I'm pretty sure it was only 480p and 240p. And as far as the FrameMeister goes, um, I've never tried that, but I asked around, and most of the people that I asked said it kind of softens the image a bit, so they just either use the pass-through or not at all. They just plug it directly into their HDTV. So maybe people in the comments might be able to chime in on that and let me know what they think. Um, I think something like a DVD-O scaler might be better for 720p and up, but um, I'm really not an expert at that. I generally just plug 720p directly into my plasma and let it handle it, so uh, any comments would be appreciated. And lastly, Patrick Trainer had two questions. His first was how to split an RGB signal um, in regards to something we talked about last week. And the the answer to that is, I don't know of any SCART splitters out there that are good quality and reliable. If anybody does, please let me know. But if you want to just split an RGB signal, you could always make your own cables and use a VGA splitter. Um, or you could use the Nextron RXI box. Just keep in mind that one of the outputs is processed and the other is not processed. So if you wanted to split like a sync on green signal from PlayStation 2... One of the outputs could be RGBS, but the other one will still be sync on green. So just something to keep in the back of your mind. And the other question was if you could use the SCART to BNC cables that you normally would use to go from like a, a switch to a monitor and do the opposite. And yes, and in fact, when I was testing the PS2 sync on green stuff through that Extron, I took my SCART to BNC cable and simply modified the sync cable, and now I was able to go BNC to SCART. So the reason for this is SCART cables are directional. Um, the RGB lines are always the same, but sync has an in and out, and same with audio, I believe. And if you're just going video signals, BNC to SCART or vice versa, the only pin you have to worry about is sync, and then you would just go 20 to 19 or 19 to 20, depending on what your solution was. So it's very easy. It's only one pin. Just pop the SCART side open. Um, and, I, you know, I think some people have even installed a switch in their SCART cable, so they're able to go from in and out, which is kind of a cool idea as well. So hopefully that was a good answer to the questions. Next up, we have a great interview with Chris Covell, somebody who's been contributing to the retro gaming scene for a very long time. I had a great time on the interview, but he was very humble and downplayed a lot of the work that he'd done, so I'll do all the bragging for him. Um, the first thing that I noticed about Chris was a page called I Want My RGB, and this really was kind of what got me started on my website, because at the time, his was the only page I could find that was a, a reliable website you can go to, not just a forum post that sometimes the forums go down or things happen, and I'd really just used his work as a jumping off point for mine, and on that page he compared composite to RGB, and then even used emulation as a reference too, and it was great. Uh, it was, you know, the, really just a perfect start for me. That and the GameXX page, actually. 
Um, and then he also was one of the first people to do Game Gear to Master System conversions, so to allow you to play it through a, a ROM card of sorts. And that was a very big deal for me, because I loved certain Game Gear games, but the ones that were Game Gear only, the really only choices were to use an RGB out or to just play them on the Game Gear. And that work actually really ballooned up in the past few years. When I had first talked about that, I had uh, then posted on SMS Power and kind of said, hey, this is a great idea. I see other people have done conversions as well. There was probably five or six at the time, and some were really great. But, you know, could we could we do more of these? Because, you know, this is something that everybody would benefit from, anybody that had either a Genesis or an SMS ROM cart as well. And it just started to really balloon. Guys were on there just doing a ton of conversions and a lot of great work. And it got to the point where I even stopped putting the conversions on my site because I was uh, administering both that and the one on SMS Power. So now my page is more of a reference, and there's over 50 conversions. And, you know, he was one of the guys that laid the groundwork for this. So I really wanted to interview him and kind of talk about where he came from, how he got started, other work he's been doing. And... You know, sometimes when I'm doing these interviews, I forget that I'm doing an interview because it feels like I'm just, you know, hanging out, having a beer at a bar with one of my buddies talking about nerdy things that I love to talk about. So we did get a little bit sidetracked, but, you know, the the whole Canadian moving to Japan and, and kind of hearing his story, I, I really liked it. And I hope that you guys were into it, too. And I'm sorry if I rambled a little bit too much. I wasn't on the top of my game. I wasn't really feeling too well the night we did it, but... Um, as always, comments, you know, let me know what you think, any suggestions or improvements, uh, and I really hope you guys enjoy listening to it as much as I did, kind of having a conversation with him. So here you go, Chris Covell. Hey guys, we're here with Chris Covell. Thanks so much, man, for uh, for coming on and trying to get this done. Uh, it's no problem. <laughs> yeah, so, thanks. But for everybody watching, we just spent like five minutes trying to get both of our video cameras working. And it was, uh, it was kind of funny because one would work, one wouldn't work, and everything else. And it's just, you know, I think everybody just assumes that nerds like us are like a thousand pounds. So I just want <laughs> I want everybody to see, like, we're all normal. I mean, I packed on like a million <laughs> pounds last year, but whatever. <laughs> you didn't, so. Well, <laughs> no one has well it's, it's neck up, so we're safe. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Chris's, uh, Chris's little avatar for his screen name is like a ninja, him dressed as a ninja. So I threatened to have that as what would be up in the video if we didn't get the, the camera working, so. Although you as a ninja is kind of cool, actually. So, <laughs> but, but man, I've been wanting to talk to you for a long time. I think, geez, I think the first time I stumbled across your uh, posts were for the Game Boy Advance, um, the innovation adapter, where you figured out RGB for it or something. Oh, I just saw a, a picture yeah. of that online. Somebody had already done it. Yeah, um, it was a million years ago, I think. And um, yeah, so. And what I ask everybody is what I'm genuinely curious about is how did you get started in all this stuff? Do you have a background in tech or did you just, you know, like messing with I don't with have any whatsoever, really. Um, <laughs> back in elementary school, I had like a, a 101 electronics kit from Radio Shack. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, it was fun to play around with and I followed like the, the instructions in the manual. But I didn't really get or understand what, elect- what all the electronic com- components really did. Mm-hmm. I mean, I knew a resistor provided resistance, but transistors, capacitors, I, I really quite didn't get it. So I'm not really a good hardware tech guy. Mm-hmm. Um, um, and kind of the same thing. Uh, my first actual home system was uh, a, uh, again, a Radio Shack TRS-80 color computer. I had and, one of those. Uh, With the tape yeah, adapter, and, so you put the cassette tape in? That's right. Yeah. And I could never get the tape to work. Uh, I had... <laughs> 
I had Puyan on tape, and that never just never worked. So I stuck to car- stuck to cartridges. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, I kind of I learned basic. It, it was it was you know it was useful. Means I didn't it. quite yeah I didn't you know stuff like you know uh, arrays and dim dim uh, all that stuff. Um, I never got I didn't super quite, deep into it, but I definitely yeah, knew how to work the language in and out. So yeah, I, I was a little bit too young for that. So mm-hmm. uh, you know um, both on the basic side and the hardware side, I. I had fun with that as a child, but I really didn't understand it. Mm-hmm. Um, not well enough to actually be a ninja. <laughs> it's funny. Kids but, these days will never understand what it's like you to be a kid and you have a choice between like, for me, my dad made me a tape of Jethro Tull, always a little metalhead, but, uh, cool. <laughs> you know, I could either like, I could either listen to Aqualung or I could save the program that I just wrote, which I think was this mind blowingly complicated program where if you typed in like two plus two, it says equals four or something, yeah. <laughs> something, you know, like a child program like that. So yeah, yeah, it's funny how those things used to work. Yeah. So, um, yeah, I could never get tape saving to work either. I mean, it kind of worked. I guess it did work. Um, um, I remember, you know, saving the things, but it's, you know, never really got that far. Um, and when the uh, Nintendo, the NES, came along, that was goodbye, Coco too. Yeah, uh, and you know. I kept it. I kept it, but I actually pulled it apart and just. Well, I, you know, of course, I was one of those guys who pulled stuff apart with screwdrivers all the time. So I did that with the uh, all my stuff as well. I think but, all of know, us the, nerds did as kids. And yeah, then when we broke something, I'd use uh, I'd use the wires in one to, to work on another thing because it's yeah. three wires and things. Yeah, absolutely. So, um, yeah, I, you know, um, Nintendo came along and then I kind of was a gamer, not really a programmer. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, but around um, in high school, uh, uh, I took computer science classes, computer programming classes. Mm-hmm. And that was the first year was just memorizing stuff that we did in class on the test and because that, that's all you needed to do, just regurgitate stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it was at Pascal. Uh, but then in the second year of uh, computer programming, they made you actually, you know, create stuff and think about it. So that's that was a lot of fun. So I started with programming uh, from late high school uh, into college. And that's that's how it started for me. Mm-hmm. Um, but in, in uh, college, we were learning C++, mm-hmm. which was all right, but it's a big headache. And then... In my second year of college, we actually also did computer architecture, where we were we learned uh, uh, 8086 assembly, and that was a hell of a lot more fun than C++. So, um, I I had more fun doing assembly stuff and doing weird things on the computers in the lab, uh, making it beat and piss everybody off. Yeah. Um, so, I that's you know that's kind of where it started. I started with uh, learning assembly in college, and then really wanting to learn how to program in assembly on like a, a Commodore 64 or NES or other, you know, some other systems. So that's kind of how I started just learning, you know, figuring out what's, uh, what documents there were online at that time. This would be around 1997 or so. Yeah. Yeah. I, um, I tried my hand at programming and then I very quickly found out that uh, I don't have the attention span for it. And what really, uh, what really got me was a friend of mine. It was actually my friend's older brother, who then a million years later we ended up becoming very good friends. Mm-hmm. He gave me a programming book. I, it might have been it, it Linux-based. I forgot exactly what it was, but I made it through Chapter 1. Great. Made it through Chapter 2, and at the end of Chapter 2 it says, okay, well, just copy down the script and, you know, uh, make sure that the screen blinks, whatever it was supposed to do. So I, I tried it. Nothing works. I read through every line, nothing works. And there was, you know, 70 lines in that thing. I wow. finally went, you know what, screw it, let me go to chapter three. And the first line of chapter three is, 
So the program didn't work. Welcome to programming. That's what it's like <laughs> to write programs. I just went, close, goodbye. <laughs> <And> never, <laughs> too cruel. Kind of turned me off. He thought it was funny. He loved the book and said it was his uh, <laughs> It was his transition into programming. And I read it and went, oh, hell no. Nope, I'm out. Oh. <laughs> so, yeah. <laughs> hey. But. Yeah, well, um, with um, uh, if you're using somebody else's libraries in like C or something else, then you don't know what where it went wrong. And that I would give up doing that too. Yeah. Um, with assembly, at least I know it's entirely my fault, unless it's some electrical problem. <laughs> the one thing I, I used to write a ton of was uh, batch file scripts, which yeah. anybody who knows DOS is probably laughing at me right now. Like, yes, idiot, you can write ten lines in a thing, but I would actually write these long ones that would um, do very complicated uh, software distribution packages. So you'd yeah. be able to push out now to, for anybody who's in IT now to pixie boot a remote computer and throw an OS on it. It's like, you know, maybe a full day's worth of writing it and a day's worth of testing and you're done. You yeah. know, 10 years ago, 10 plus years ago, that was not the case. You actually had to write everything. You had to set the timer commands on each one. No, I loved it. I actually thought yeah. that was awesome. But that's as far as I got was complicated batch files and then <laughs> for me. Okay. But, all so, right, so you, what um what got you pushing from the the assembly code and the eight oh eight six code to um hacking Game Gear games? Like, what was the transition for that? Um, I don't know. Um, <laughs> well, I, I I came to Japan uh, in uh, two thousand and two, uh, and I so had you're originally from the states, based on your I'm, accent. I'm from, no, I'm from Canada. I'm Canada, from Vancouver, BC. Yeah. There you go. I think that makes me a racist now. Shit. <laughs> Um, from <laughs> Canada right. to Japan. <laughs> yeah, you don't sound like you're from New York either. <laughs> yeah, yeah I'm, I'm from kind of by New York, but okay, <laughs> close enough. Yeah, so yeah, so um, I um, I grew up in Vancouver, uh, Canada. Uh, okay. And 2002, when I graduated university, I came to Japan and started teaching English. Mm. And I'm still in Japan now. Um, so, uh, still teaching English? Yeah, yeah. Um, Sweet. That's that's what I, uh, you know, in after college, two, after two years of college, computer science and math especially got way too tough, so I flipped over to uh, English uh, as a major, and that's what was a lot more fun and, and, and well, better for me, anyway. Um, yeah. So, yeah, um, I, um, I also got, like, a teaching ESL certificate in, in university, mm -hmm. and so that's why I came to Japan, basically, to, to teach as a career. Uh, and so um, Japan's a bit different from North America, uh, things are really cheap. I mean, old used used games are really, really, really cheap. Um, and well, there there are certain booms, but uh, you know, like uh, price inflation, and but it, it never gets as bad as it does in North America, I'm sure. And yeah, probably I asked my buddy Jordan, who lives out there as well, to get me a, a stack of stuff a few months ago, and you know, he just did it for cost, and I got I was able to do so much testing that I would have never afforded to be able to do because he just picked it all up for cheap prices, boxed it up, and sent it to me. So yeah, yeah. So um, it is a paradise. It's an electronics paradise, <laughs> uh, and so I, you know, I got my I uh, got my paycheck. I went to like uh, used game shops or junk shops and found oh hey here's a Game Gear uh, for uh, 200 yen, about two bucks, mm -hmm. and here games 50 cents each, uh, and so I just picked up things that I've never played before, and you know I kind of knew about you know Sega Master System and Game Gear stuff before, even though I've never owned them, um, but uh, you know I, I knew which games were kind of good, so I picked them up because they were cheap, and of course the Game Gear screen sucks. Uh, yes, it does. <laughs> so you know I opened it up like I usually would, and just 
plugged what plug an AV cord into the TV and just tapped the the tip of the cord on all the pins on the the uh, you know the CPU or whatever uh, inside the Game Gear just to see what it would look like and I found some video so that was the start uh, uh, and uh, you know I got I got some video working on the TV from the Game Gear and that was pretty cool. Um, and I got a flash cartridge for the Game Gear as well, so I could play all the Game Gear games. Was uh, that actually, an EverDrive, or was there something that was out I'm before? sorry, no. Actually, it was a Sega Master System flash card um, by, from Tech. Oh, okay, uh, okay. In Hong Kong. And they used to make a bunch of flash cartridges. Uh, right, right, yeah. Yeah, so I, I had a Master System flash card and uh, a uh, wide, what's it called, wide gear adapter, which lets you put it Master System cartridges on the Game Gear. Right, yep, yep. So I had a Game Gear flash cartridge as well. So I think it was the Master Gear converter in the States. Oh, Master Gear. Yeah, sorry. Right. Yeah. Master Gear. Yeah. Um, oh, yeah. It's also called the Gear Master. There are two different companies make them. Right, right. Yeah, Master Sega Gear. always would license their stuff like that. Gear yeah. Master, Master Gear. And it all, yeah. most of it was a little bit different, too. So you'd notice, like, one game would work on one but not the other, or vice versa. Yeah, so, yeah, so that Tech flash cartridge worked with the, ma- the Gear Master. So mm-hmm. unofficial one. Um, it didn't work with the Master the master gear. Right. Um, <clears throat> but anyway, so I could get a Game Gear flash cartridge. Um, and so that was fun playing Game Gear games. Um, and, you know, for years people have been saying, hey, like on um, SMS Power, where people do, all, all uh, Master System programmers converge, mm-hmm. uh, you know, hey, who's going to make, like, a convert a Game Gear game to Master System? Who's going to do that? Basically nobody did. Um, you know, they just talk about it for um, years and years. You know who's going to do it, and you know it doesn't hurt to start trying. So, um, <clears throat> I started just with Woody Pop and saw, mm-hmm. um, you know, like a, on the Gear Master, there, I put in a switch which uh, switched one of the pins between Master System mode and Game Gear mode. And so, uh, if you flip the switch on the cartridge, uh, the Game Gear works in Master System mode, so you can play Game Gear games in Master System mode where the colors all screwed up. Right. So all that's left over is just fixing the game so it doesn't screw up the colors. So and for people that aren't familiar with that, that's um, because the Master System and the Game Gear were so similar with really just only the color limitations from the Master System. When they Basically, would program yeah. games, they would actually just program the same game that could be burned to the two different carts with yep. one little flag on it that says, this is a Master System, this is a Game Gear. So Yeah, pretty much. Yeah. yeah. Um, uh, the, uh, the screen dimensions are still the same on the Game Gear as a Master System, mm-hmm. but uh, when it's in Game Gear mode, it just puts a little window of, of that uh, uh, screen map uh, on, right. on the Game Gear screen. So, so if I could remember correctly, it's when um, the Game Gear processes, um, it's not 320 by 240, it's the 256 by... Two, 192. 192. Um, and, but it processes the full resolution of the Master System, but only displays yeah. on the screen. Yeah, just a little window. Right, yeah, so and, that's and the thing. So, it's almost like you have, you know, this is what it's processing, but this is what it's displaying. That's right, yeah. So being able to put something into Master System mode, you actually get the full screen out of it. You get the full screen, and a lot, on a lot of Game Gear games, it's just garbage, because they don't have to put stuff in there. 
Uh, or, and that's what caused yeah. the big issue because games like Sonic the Hedgehog for Master System is totally different the than edges. the Genesis version. But yeah. if you ever put two side by side, you actually could see that it's just a carved out version of the Master System. Yeah. So when you turn that flag on or just use the Master System version, you get the full game. But for the yeah. ones that were designed specifically for the Game Gear, they never bothered to program the rest of it. So you get garbage and weird artifacts yeah. happening or repeating frames or stuff like that. Yeah, that's pretty much it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, they're they're so similar. The only thing to do is just fix up the game programming, uh, right. make the screen a bit wider, or um, uh, get rid of bugs, uh, and that's basically it. Yeah. So the first one of your conversions that I saw was is it Aleste in Power Strike? Is that how you pronounce Aleste or something? I'm, I'm uh, out of these. Aleste. Aleste. <laughs> yeah, we say Aleste. Uh, Aleste. I say Aleste anyway. Everybody um, everybody always makes fun of me. I can't pronounce anything. When it comes to language, um, your typical dumb American. Not for culture, but for language, definitely. I can't pronounce well, anything. So. Uh, Alesta is Alesta, the word Alesta is a mangled uh, 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 romanization of lightning arrester. And that's where it comes from. Uh, oh, so, that you know, makes li- the game li- even more badass now. I like yeah, it. so a, a lightning rod in old in Japanese is an old English word, lightning arrester, and so they cut off the word lightning and use arrester and then they mangle that into aresta um, in Japanese and so that's that's where it comes from. That's Um, pretty cool. Yeah Um, so um, actually but anyway the first Game Gear game I did was um, Woody Pop. Woody Pop right. Um, And that would randomly crash because I didn't really know at the time about um, some of the ports that needed to be cut out some port uh, Z80 port rights. So when you just out. started hacking into this, were you basically doing the software equivalent of tapping on the pins with your video hooked up to it, or did you actually no, no, have some no, no. kind of... Um... Um, well, uh, I, I looked at a disassembly, or uh, I looked at it in, in the debugger in uh, Mecca, uh, the emulator, and uh, all you have to do is figure out where where does it write to the palette and make that palette not 64 bytes, but 32 bytes or something like that, um, or whatever size it was, I kind of forget now. Mm-hmm. Um, and also uh, get rid of the uh, Game Gear games polling uh, of the uh, interface, the uh, communications port, because mm-hmm. uh, that that creates the, that causes the game to crash among some other things. Um, and so I knew I kind of knew what I was doing, but I didn't know what that all you know not all the ports that the Game Gear used uh, worked on the Master System. So uh, later on, people on on SMS Power Forum forum said, "Don't forget to cut this write out or this read out," uh, and that made the games not crash. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. So the first working one I put out was uh, Pop Breaker, a conversion of that, um, and it never came out in North America. So, I th- probably you, you would know it, but it's uh, it's a pretty fun puzzle action game, uh, um, and the game used. The whole 256. Uh, actually, the whole game map is already written in the video RAM. Uh, so on the Game Gear, it scrolls around this map that's 256 by 192. But if you put that into Sega Master System mode, it's mostly all on screen. And so there was not a lot of things that had to be changed. Yeah, I remember playing your conversion, and I think the only reason I even knew that game existed was because of the conversion. And I remember that it actually was really. Clean. I mean, I, it looked pretty good. So. Yeah, I mean, I found it for like 50 yen in the shops, and you know, it's got a, it's got a cute girl in a tank on the on the the cartridge label. So why not buy it? Agreed. <laughs> that's kind of that's quite, kind of like what you can do. You can tr- test out random games when they're that cheap. So yeah, mm. and it is a fun game. It's a lot of fun. Yeah. Um, yeah. 
the uh, you know the real limitation on the, of the master system compared to the game gear was is that uh, the palette is quite limited. Um, the um, game gear can do 4,096 colors. That's its full palette, and the game the master system can only do 64. So if yeah, if you, you have know, like that was the one thing I never understood is because um, you know I do prefer the game gear to master system conversions over just playing game gear hooked up to an RGB monitor because really? even with the garbage you do get the full screen you get some other advantages. But the one yep. thing I didn't understand is I, I think I was talking to Chilly Willie a few years ago, which I haven't emailed with him in a long time. I don't know if he's still even uh, doing anything with uh, mm-hmm. Sega related, but he said he was actually working on an emulator so that you could run. Um, Game Gear games through a 32x using a Genesis ROM cart because the palette's the same and you'd be able to to pretty much map everything in real time. And then I haven't heard from him in about two years, so I'm not sure if he ever finished that or not. But you know, I, I think the people number of people that own a 32x and a Game Gear and want to do that is so limited. Uh, true, but I well, think the amount of people that like Game Gear. It far exceeds the amount of people that like 32x and would probably yeah. go buy a 32x just for that option. So okay, yeah. I mean, it, it's it's kind of cool, but there. Um, I think it's just better to get uh, the RGB uh, or other video mod, uh, mod mod boards for the Game Gear and put those in, or get somebody to put those in. That probably be a bit better. The one thing that really um, I was kind of I guess shocked when I played it was the the best way I could describe it. Because I distinctly remember being a kid and wanting to love my Game Gear. I, you know, it was yeah. color and it was backlit, and you know, Game Boy was great, but you know, it's color. And I just remember sitting there, just going, "All right, well, all right, hold on, let me hold it." Oh, now somebody opened a window. Let me hold it this way now, and just it was the Mick Will mod where he put the LCD screen in it. Have you played yeah. with that yet? Uh, I've seen it. Um, um, I don't think I want to get one of those uh, LCD screens. Uh, for one, I'm kind of done with Game Gear. I'm done. But but also, uh, those don't really introduce scale, and that drives me crazy. Uh, you probably know. The, they the don't, and that yeah. normally drives me batshit crazy. But it yeah. was just, the, um, his implementation of it was very well done. Um, yeah. He does the cropping in a way where it didn't bother me, and it was being able to, to hold and see the games that I used to love as a kid, but actually be able to see them. Yeah, true, true, it is clear. <laughs> yeah. It did kind of blow my mind. I just... I wish he had got, found a, a 320 by 240 screen because they do exist. So yeah. I kind of just yeah, wish he had that and scaled it up. But. Yeah, if, if I mean, if they find a better screen, that uh, I would probably you know jump at it. Um, there are lots of like uh, app games, uh, you know, portable Game Gears or Genesis's or whatever, and sometimes they use like the wrong the wrong LCD screen, and so they yes. have to upscale stuff um, or just sometimes just stretch to 16 by 9 ratio, and that. Oh, um, I hate that. Um, Have any, you played any, the At Games one though? Because that's that's the one I've seen. And I've never tried, and it looked cool. But uh, no, I haven't. Um, mm-hmm. Maybe I have actually, uh, but I haven't. I didn't buy it or anything. I just I, I saw it. That's about all. Because I've uh, I keep seeing it. And I just don't know if it's worth buying or not. If it's even worth wasting my time, or if it'll, you know, because there was a couple of Game Boy Color clones. Yeah. And I wanted them to work so badly. Backlit screen and everything. And the one that I got, everybody complained about the buttons. It was the GB Boy color. And the yeah. buttons weren't too bad, but the vertical scrolling, the aspect ratio was so far off that it yeah. would just tear. It was wrong, yeah. Yeah, it just, yeah. It, yeah I couldn't stand it. So. Yeah, so that, that's kind of going into my one of my pet peeves about uh, playing retro games. Uh, uh, fine, if, if, if I don't own like some rare system... It's it's great to play it on a computer or something else, 
but if I already if I own it, um, I don't want it filtered or non-integer upscaled, Agreed. and I don't want to have screen tearing. Uh, oh, I hate it. Um, Game Boy Advance also, is the worst for that. Yeah. Also, lag is bad for you know you know all these things that piss me off about uh, modern gaming or modern emulation anyway. Right. Um, I already have all my old systems. I'm keeping them, so uh, I don't want anything just getting in the way. Uh, Do you have and, an RGB monitor that you use yeah. out there? Yeah. Um, it's not going to get I, much better than that, then. <laughs> exactly, yeah. Um, and so uh, there's a lot of excitement over HDMI upscaler, upscalers or, you know, component to HDMI converters. I actually don't own anything, any TVs that can show HDMI. Uh, so, I'm, you know, I'm until my CRTs, you know... Uh, uh, Bite the dust. I'll be. I'll be happy. After that, then I'll see what's on the market at that time. But uh, yeah, for now, I don't really own any HDMI stuff. So HDMI Nintendos, it's great. I can't use them though. <laughs> um, yeah. Yeah. HDMI retro boxes. They only put out HDMI. I can't really use those either. Um, well, so, some of the HDMI retro boxes are all software emulation anyway. Like the Retron Five. I I kind of didn't like it at first anyway. I did the full... I mean, I spent all day doing a write-up on it because I'd gotten more emails about that than anything else. Yeah. And then on top of that, when you found out it was stolen software from RetroArch, <laughs> it's just... Ugh, yeah. I wanted to throw uh, that thing in the garbage, so... Yeah, there, there are many things that kind of get in the way of, you know, uh, enjoyment. I guess I'm a purist, uh, but... Um, the th- it's it's uh, HDMI and LCD TVs are great technology, um, but... They should perform better than 1980s technology. That's kind of my opinion, and in a lot of ways they don't. Agreed. And my cousin yeah. Scott, who was on the podcast a few weeks ago, still doesn't own a flat screen TV for this exact reason. He has a yeah. really gorgeous 34-inch Sony widescreen tube TV, yeah. and that for retro games it processes 240p as 480i, but for anything 480p and above, it's amazing. And yeah. you know, there's no lag in it. You know, it just it's a great TV, but. Yeah. He's the same way. But I actually have – so I, I was lucky enough to have a job where I got to go to CES. I got – you know, used to get to travel the whole world. And mm-hmm. I saw something called SED TVs, which are forgotten technology. It's I okay. what it stood for. But it was a, a joint technology between Canon and Toshiba. Okay. And then right before they launched it, there was a patent dispute, and they just canceled it. They canceled the factory in uh-huh. Japan. They canceled everything. Oh, but man. each pixel – I mean, and I'm oversimplifying this, by the way, but each pixel was essentially its own tube. So you got zero lag. Although it was a pixel-based thing, it could be off-resolution. It wouldn't look all crazy. And the, um, it was – I mean, it blew my mind when I saw the demo of wow. it. And then I guess, you know, for whatever reason – I'm sure there was politics involved in that too, but it was just – you know, then I go back to LCD, and I'm like, ah. Oh, it could have been so good. <laughs> it could have. But OLED has some, some really great potential. As long as they get the lag down, I was super, yeah. super impressed with OLED. But generally yeah. speaking, you're right, you know. And when people go into a Best Buy and they say, oh, yeah, you know, I just got a 50-inch TV for $170. How do you think that's going to look? <laughs> yeah. You know, terrible lag, looks everything tears, you know. Just yeah. 1080p tears. So it's... Yeah. um. Yeah, I, I feel your pain I, with the CRTs. Yeah, I, I don't want to sound like a tech snob or a retro snob. Um, I'm just a cheapskate. I uh, I have old tube TVs in my house because I've hold on, I've held on to them. It's not like I've turned up my nose at newer things. It's just my old things still work, and so why not keep them? Um, no, that's that's a good perspective to have too. I mean, 
you know, in my bedroom, I got a, a crappy, crappy flat screen 4K TV because I just wanted something small. You know, how often yeah. do you really, really sit down and watch TV before you go to sleep? In my living room, I did. I um, One of the guys I used to work with, he's a very high-end installer for home theater stuff, and he called me one day and he said, hey, there's a $4,000 TV that Costco somehow has and they're getting rid of because it's overstock. Do you have $900 on you for a $4,000 TV? I booked it straight. Ooh. I signed up for the membership. I bought it, brought it home. He came by a couple weeks later, and he told me the uh, the burn-in process where you're going to leave an SD card in so it puts the colors in. And he mm-hmm. came by and calibrated it, which he usually charges like insane amounts of money for it. But I recovered a dead hard drive for him, so he owed me one. So now that is the one thing for less than a grand. I do get to watch movies that look freaking phenomenal. It's still That's not good. the best <laughs> yeah. for games. It's about two and a half frames of lag, but... Yeah. yeah, 3D movies on that thing are way better than 3D movies in a the theater, so I'm lucky with that. But Yeah, if, if I had time to watch movies, I'd probably really like that. Yeah. yeah. Um, I, was at, I went to my, um, uh, my friend's house, who lives um, around here, uh, to play some Famicom games. And, mm. uh, you know, I, I said, hey, what do you want to play? Oh, let's play, like, Rockman. Let's play Mega Man 2. And I said, okay, so I hooked it up. And, um, you know, I turned it on. What the hell? I missed a jump. And I landed right in the pit. Oh, right. right. Have you ever seen the uh, the phone dork video about that? Um, yeah, I did. I did. Uh, um, I was absolutely with, dying with when I saw that. Because yeah. that was my exact reaction in the same spot of the game when you're trying to jump on the falling platforms. Yeah. And he's swearing at the TV. I'm like, that's, that's exactly what lag is yeah. like. That's I, did, I, didn't, I didn't get angry. I just had for, totally forgotten about it when I went to a different person's house. Yeah. And um, so, you know, the more... I, Pushed the button and the jumps got delayed. I thought, okay, I'm gonna wait till technology improves. Yeah. If it ever does. Yeah. You know, I love new technology. I love learning about it and playing with it. But I always want what I feel like is the best, which is why you know I'll play a brand new game like you know Shovel Knight, but I'll also go back and play Super Metroid because I don't really care that it's 20 something years old. I just want to play what I feel like is the best thing for me to play. So it's the yeah. same thing with the technology. There's very often I'll play things on my RGB monitors, which, you know, I'm so lucky to have. But, you know, occasionally I just want to play, like, a, especially a slower-paced game. You know, it's kind of nice to play it on a big 50-inch screen sometimes. So, it is, yeah. You know, I just uh, I try to capitalize on both, I guess is the yeah. best way to say it. But yeah, It probably depends on what mood you're in, uh, whether you want, like, a theatrical experience. It's better on a big TV. Laziness, too. I yeah. live in a small apartment, so pulling out the RGB monitor and hooking everything up, you know, I get everything all, you know, pulling everything out of the boxes to hook everything yeah. up. Sometimes it's nice just to grab, you know, the new AVS and plug it right in. Of course, yeah. Nintendo, you know. But. Yeah. Um, yeah, so, um, uh, speaking, so about RGB monitors, uh, mm-hmm. I, um, in, in Canada I had uh, an Amiga, um, and so I had, like, a Commodore monitor with that, and that would work in many different uh, screen modes and refresh rates. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so that's how I, that's when I got into like RGB, trying to hook up my uh, Turbo Duo to that. And I got it working. It was, it was not bad. Um, in Japan, there aren't any Commodore monitors really, but old uh, non-IBM type computer monitors work, and they have RGB inputs. Uh, so they would work with 15 kilohertz only, 15 mm-hmm. kilohertz RGB only. Uh, and after that one kind of crapped out, I bought uh, an NEC multi-sync tube CRT monitor. Um, it's a nice, it's a nice big, uh, 19, no, 21 inch, 21, 21 inches, I think. Those were always awesome. I even remember them when they came out. I, uh, I was yeah. lucky enough to have the 29 inch one, 
which mm-hmm. I just got a few years ago. That was phenomenal. I loved that monitor. But. Yeah. Um, it doesn't do 15 gigahertz. 15 kilohertz. Oh, uh, that one doesn't. No, it 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 can do uh, you know 50 hertz PAL signals, uh, uh, so quote unquote PAL signals, but it doesn't do that. But um, several years ago, I bought an XRGB2, two mm-hmm. plus, mm-hmm. and uh, at the time I tested it on my um, uh, another LCD computer monitor, mm-hmm. and it had shimmering and wavy lines and it looked like shit. So I thought I said, oh, this XRGB is, is crap. Um, it's crap if you do it on an LCD monitor, um, probably. Right. Um, but on a tube monitor, it, you don't really see any of the shimmering. It's there, but it is a quarter of a pixel wide. Right. Um, and that's kind of the weak point of the XRGB2 Plus compared to some of the other models. Mm-hmm. They do have a little bit of shimmering in the video. But actually, that upscales, or not upscales, yeah, that upscales. <laughs> uh, it's a line doubler, though, right? Whereas it's a line doubler. The XRGB3 yeah. is like a true line doubler, and it, I right. don't think it has so, a lot of the shimmering issues. But Yeah, yeah. So that, that was kind of the weak point of the 2+. plus. Even the XRGB2 doesn't have that. Mm-hmm. But it, you have to use these knobs to you know, adjust stuff on that one. Uh, I, I bought the, the 2+, because it, it was really cheap on, on Yahoo Auctions, so I figured, why not? Uh, and actually, that's what I use every day because it works fantastic mm-hmm. on this nice big tube monitor. And it works in 50 hertz, so I have like a um, Commodore 128, a PAL model Commodore 128 that I use on that. Mm-hmm. And yeah, so that's what I use, uh, XRGB2 Plus and this nice computer monitor. That's pretty cool. Yeah. So uh, yeah, that's that's what I use nowadays. I don't have a PVM or anything like that. Oh, yeah. Those are really expensive. <laughs> I was going to say, are they common out there at all? Are they RGB models? Yeah, yeah. Or? Um, I, um, on, on Yahoo Auctions, which is what people use here for, mm-hmm. for auction sites, uh, you can find PVMs and maybe BVMs as well. Um, but they, are, they get expensive. Um, untested or it says junk or something mm-hmm. like that. It's maybe like 200 bucks, And then it goes up from there. Yeah, um, they're getting harder and harder to find around in North America too. And maybe just two or three years ago, you know, not only were they cheaper and easier to find, but you could just call around to places and say, hey, you know, do you still use these broadcast monitors? I'll come pick them all up for free. And, you know, people are, oh, great, awesome, yeah, take them. And, you know. Yeah, yeah, that, that's easy to do in the United States probably. In yeah. Japan, there's a language barrier, first of all. Oh, yeah, um, yeah. People toss things a lot faster and earlier in Japan. And really? then also any kind of unorthodox request, they'll like go, I don't want to take responsibility for that here. Uh, so, you know, I go to a hospital and say, hey, you know, do you have any old monitors? And like, I don't know. And I'm not going to find out for you either. That's kind of the attitude you would get. So um, it's, it's the same way in America, actually. But I luckily, oh, really? <laughs> one of the jobs that I had, I, I worked, uh, did a lot of work for hospitals, for computers like that. We would yeah. install some of the systems there. So, so you're you just going to right look guy. for the grumpiest IT guy. And then okay. just get buddies with him and then ask him, and then everything's cool. So it was, yeah. uh, luckily, being an IT guy myself, it was easy to spot him and then yeah. just go <laughs> bullshit with him for 10 minutes and then ask about the monitors. And, you know, I was able to get one or two that way. So, yeah. yeah. But yeah. You, you probably could do that if you were really if you were a really great people person with great Japanese skills. But The uh, great Japanese skills is where I would fail. I, yeah. I, I spent a lot of time in Taiwan and tried really hard for about three months to learn the basics of Mandarin, and I learned how to find the bathroom, order beer, order Jägermeister, and hail a cab on the way home. I was yeah. really great at all that stuff, and that was it. That was the extent of my Mandarin Chinese. So, yeah. yeah big fail after three months of trying. So, Ooh. so. Yeah. hey, I always made it home. Uh, that's good. <laughs>
how did you manage? You say, I'm a foreigner in a strange land, take me home. Did people feel sorry for you? Honestly, my secret was that I would get business cards everywhere. And I would always okay. just get in the cab looking jet-lagged and tired because most of the time I actually was jet-lagged and tired. And just say, hey, I'm going here and hand them the business card. And okay. because I'd learned the routes so often, I would see when, you know, maybe they weren't used to that area or something and go, it's a left up here. And they would, they would do a double take, like, how the hell is he reading the signs? I huh. thought he's just an American. And they just, no, it's over there. It's on the right. It's that building. And they'd all, people would just assume that I spoke or I at least understood Mandarin. So I never yeah. get messed with. I would just, I would always get home. And a lot of the cab drivers were hilarious and awesome people. So I ended up using the same ones over and over. We would just text them or something. But cool. Yeah, yeah that's, was, actually, uh, that's actually an experience I had have in Japan. If I have to take a taxi home, you know, like the train stop or something, uh, sometimes the guy doesn't know the route. Uh, yeah, he just, he's like, uh, what do I do? He's looking on his uh, navigation system. And I'd say, go straight. Go, don't take this street. Go that, go that one. Mm-hmm. And, you know, turn left here. So he, I kind of backseat drive. <laughs> and maybe I appear to be great at Japanese as well. So are you fluent in Japanese, or do you just kind of um, speak basic? Uh... I'm okay. I'm not fluent, but uh, I, I can understand what people are saying. My wife is Japanese, uh, mm. and so you know she helps me. Of course, uh, I've got no choice. Um, but you know, yeah, I'm okay. I can manage. Uh, grammar fails me sometimes, and difficult words fail me. I couldn't do a tax return. Uh, <laughs> but I, mean, you know, I think I, most people can't do tax returns, so it's yeah. fine. <laughs> yeah, I, I can get get by in daily conversation, um, and and even uh, sometimes I meet up with. Uh, Retro gamers here, uh, mm-hmm. or you know, people who are just crazy about pro- crazy into programming, mm-hmm. and we can talk about kind of complex stuff like how you know programming or you know like sound techniques, uh, audio techniques. I can kind of get by. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know how I did, but uh, yeah, I, I could. But if like the topic is foreign to me, if it's not about programming, if it's about you know again taxes or you know. Absolutely freaking love in Taiwan is when we were in a tech room talking about nerd things. We're yeah. in a room of people and nobody, you know, none of them spoke English, none of us spoke Mandarin. Then we were, you know, the, my kind of partner in crime over there is named Jackie, and he didn't speak the greatest English. And we're we're friendly arguing about something. No, it should go upside down. No, it should go this way. And I I recommended something, and he goes, Yeah, that's perfect. And everybody else in the room who didn't speak English, they're talking in Mandarin and they're like, they're pointing. And I can kind of sort of at this point grasp what they're talking about. Like, oh, that guy has no idea what he's talking about. He needs to go this way. And as they're yeah. pointing, I went, no, the airflow goes this way because you're going to use the rear of the computer as the heat sink. And everybody kind of was like, what the hell? Does he understand what we're talking about? How do, you know, but it was just, I speak nerd. So when everybody yeah. was pointing in the same direction as I was, I got it. And everybody yeah, you, was you, you get the concepts, yeah. Totally. And you know, I love stuff like that. It's like the universal language, you know? Yeah, yeah. Science is a universal language. And Science so is math. and math, yeah. yeah. And if you feel it, those love is also a universal language. But yeah. Uh, Absolutely. So well, I think yeah. we got a little off track there, but I'm, I'm having fun. So I hope I, I'm sorry for chatting too, too long. Yeah. Um, so the uh, the two things the the posts that that you kind of pioneered were the Game Gear to Master System conversions, and you said you're kind of done with that stuff now, right? Well, um, it's fun, mm-hmm. uh, but the, uh, my my time is limited nowadays. I've got a wife and I've got a kid, uh, right? Yeah. And and so um, when I was single, uh, I could spend all weekend doing that, and maybe it took all weekend sometimes. Yeah. Um, so these these long projects uh, I kind of shouldn't or can't do anymore. Uh, so I, I I do think I guess my attention span has gotten shorter too, but it's good for me. Uh, I 
pick up things that are fun and interesting and cool and I can, uh, you know, leave it at night and then come back to it in the morning and not, and really remember all that stuff. Mm -hmm. The master system hacks, uh, I kind of, for if I, uh, if I do them, do did them now, I'd probably lose track of what I was doing, where I was. So I've kind of stick into smaller projects mostly. So what have you been working on lately then? Um, what? God. Um, uh, hacking Neo Geo sound ROM drivers to cut out some of the sound channels. Uh, so I could, you know, I could put up, I could solo just the FM, sa uh, the FM channels or um, some of the PCM or the sample channels. Is uh, it just, for making making your own soundtracks of things, or what's the purpose of that? No, no, I, I can't make any music. I'm, I'm not a composer or anything. But uh, God, I love I love video game music, uh, and so um, I did that for the PC Engine Turbo Graphics. I, I hacked um, uh, PC Engine uh, audio files, sound sound ROMs, uh, sound rips uh, to solo out the channels, and so that's what I did. I I made a a program that would show the notes going up the screen as the as the tones changed. And also, you could people could solo out individual channels. Maybe they they can use that to learn how to play it on the keyboard or guitar. That's really uh, and, cool. I like that. Yeah, and, yeah. I, I kind of like you know um, when there's in any game soundtrack when there's like a, uh, on the Turbo Graphics or on the Neo Geo, the percussion tracks kind of distract you from the melody uh, if you if you didn't notice that before. Uh, and so um, for uh, a PC Engine game, if I cut out the uh, the drum soundtrack and like the bass track, it's only the higher pitched melodies, and that actually is much clear. It becomes much clearer to my ears, and that uh, that's a way I can you know repeat it or reproduce it on the keyboard or something. Uh, so it, it's just you know something that interested me. Um, you know, mm -hmm. listening to individual uh, voices on different uh, game systems. Do you have this posted somewhere? Or? It's on my webpage. Uh, yeah, it's, send me a direct link to that when we get off so I could post that in the, the okay. notes for that. Because that's, yeah. you know, when Keftris was on a couple, maybe a, God, a couple months ago now, but we were talking about his project where he was taking basically NES games and pumping it yeah. through Atari audio. And yeah, I was I kinda, fascinated by it. I mean, I love music, obviously. I'm in the band and everything. Yeah. But, like... You know, I I wasn't sure how other people would react to it. I thought maybe they're going to think, oh, Bob's in a band, so he's just talking about music. But I, we actually got a ton of great response to it. A lot of people loved it and went to his site as a result. So I guess yeah. you know, music and gaming kind of must go hand in hand sometimes. Well, so well, I mean, it's a, it's an essential part of any movie or TV show or game. Yeah. Quite honestly. Um, yeah, I know. I'd like to hear it. I'm sure people listening probably would too. So I'll put a direct link to that. Well, I, I mean, it's on my page, but um, I also have a YouTube channel. Uh, where I put old Japanese video game uh, videos, but uh, the most recent uploads that I've put on there have been the Neo Geo, uh, you know, solo sound channel solos, and I also have a couple uh, PC Engine ones. Mm -hmm. uh, for example, um, uh, I converted Dungeon Explorer soundtrack to run as if it were on a Nintendo, an NES. Uh, oh, so that's it used awesome. NES sounds, and uh, I put up two different versions of the video on my site. One that just reduces the six channels of Dungeon Explorer, a PC Engine, down to the four uh, Nintendo NES sound channels with the same sound. I also did another video where there uses arpeggios to blend those channels six down to four. Uh, and in some cases, it doesn't sound as good, but it, I mean, it's it's just a uh, reprogramming. It's not a recomposing or anything. Uh, Jeez, so, I love that stuff. I mean, yeah, it's, it's a lot of fun to do. Uh, that's what I do instead of actually creating music, because I couldn't do that. <laughs> um, 
but yeah, um, people can actually get a direct link on the, the YouTube, my YouTube videos. And it's on my page under creations as well. Huh. Um, That's really awesome. You know, I, I love um, not only the different music aspects, but people's different perspectives on it. Like, have you played another Metroid 2 remake, AM2R, from the Argentinian? Uh, no, I haven't, though. Uh, it's uh, phenomenal. And he's a sound engineer by trade. So mm -hmm. some of the music... I would rate it from awesome to holy shit awesome. Like, <laughs> cool. the, like the lowest uh, end is still great, but he did, I think it was the Brinstar soundtrack, but he used like a weird whistle effect, and it's just like haunting and spacey, and it's just a complete reimagining of, like, you know, something that somebody else already wrote. So it's just... So yeah, it's just for the soundtrack. <laughs> yeah. Oh, he yeah. offers it too for free. Cool. And I think he just is, posted is this, it on by his way, like a, Is this, hmm? by the way, a German guy? No, I believe he's from Argentina. Oh, okay, uh, okay. I could be wrong. I hope that doesn't make me racist twice in the same interview. But no, no, no. <laughs> I'm pretty sure he's Argentinian, but I'm sorry if he's uh, he's not. I'm pretty sure. I'm just going by my own stereotypes. Um, yeah. A lot of retro games that have fantastic soundtracks, they're usually started out by a musician in Germany who really? makes the soundtrack first, and then they make a great game around it. Um, mm -hmm. Think about like uh, the uh, games by Shinin on the Game Boy Advance and mm -hmm. Nintendo DS. Uh, Manfred Linzer, I think his name is. You know, he, he's a, an old Amiga musician. Uh, and he had nobody to, you know, uh, make games that would, that would fit his soundtracks. So he made games that fit around his soundtracks by himself. Uh, and awesome. basically, the soundtrack came first, and the game came later. Uh, and that yeah. kind of repeats itself a, a bunch of times. That is a very but, German mentality. If no one else makes it the way I want it, I'll make it myself. It, it, well, that's kind of my stereotype. I'm sorry, German people. Uh, <laughs> no, that's um, a what a compliment. That's not a, that's not a stereotype. That's a compliment. <laughs> yeah. So I mean. Yeah, I, I don't want to sound like a you know a dumb racist or any kind of chauvinist about any country, but you know playing thirty years of video games, I kind of get the feeling of where does this game come from? Uh, what are the design aesthetics of certain countries? Well, the culture so, of a game is something that could definitely be felt while you're playing it. That's for yeah. sure. So and that, that's definitely you know anybody that's traveled outside of whatever their own country is doesn't matter where you came from, and you start to get exposed to different cultures, you start to get a feel of where people come from and kind of why things are the way they are and it's just when you play yeah. the game or even when you hear music like you know Rammstein's one of my favorite bands from Germany and it's just mm -hmm. you, you just even if you didn't sing in German that's kind of a giveaway but <laughs> even without it like you feel it and I just yeah I, I love that stuff so yeah. actually one of the guys that helped me when I was doing the RGB cart he was a mechanical engineer that used to design airplane terminals around the world and then wow. he started designing the stuff inside our computers and he's like uh, did you ever see Grand Torino with Clint Eastwood uh yeah I have so he's like the German version of Clint Eastwood in that he's old and he's still terrifying and he's freaking <laughs> awesome and I just called him one day you know we hadn't worked together in a year and I said hey I want to I get this huge monitor I want to build something you know in his thick German accent like bring it over and he just cuts <laughs> it all and welds it back together and 30 minutes later I have the most perfect stand for my RGB monitor so cool I love that his buddy is nicked. Uh, he built three cars from scratch, so his buddy's nicknamed him Axel Modifies It because every time he buys something, he modifies it. <laughs> wow, <laughs> that's uh, I love it. I love the culture and the whole mentality of like, this is how I want something. Fuck it, I'll make it this way myself. So yeah, yeah. And there must be something good in the education system because um, uh, games and retro games that come out of Germany usually have impeccable music and impeccable graphics. Uh, 
and I wish I had that kind of magic touch as well, or at least my, I, w- I wish the Canadian education system had that kind of magic as well. That was one of the big shockers for me when I first started traveling was I met people from from Europe and especially like Sweden, Germany, Norway that spoke pretty much flawless English. And, yeah. you know, one of them I'm talking to, I'm like, man, you know, I just, I got to say, you know, we've been working together for like three days. Where did you, where did you study English? You, you speak it perfectly. And he said, I haven't. Hollywood movies. <laughs> no, he said, I haven't spoken English since high school. We were just, we've been taught since kindergarten. So, you know, we, you know, I knew it for 12 years and never spoke it. And That's this is the yeah. first time I've spoken it in about seven years. So just wow. t- totally different. I wish it was like that in America. But yeah. But they're sort of Canada, that, sort of that so way in big, Canada. You know, how are you going to absorb so many other cultures when, you know, it would take three weeks to drive across, you know, with normal stops and everything. So yeah, I know. I, I, I do believe everybody, if they can, needs to travel out of their own country, and yeah. uh, it should be in a place that has a different language as well. That would help people for the rest of their lives. I think. Agreed. Um, that's why I'm in Japan. <laughs> well, it's kind of the opposite. I should, I, I should kick people out of Japan and send them to Canada. So they would pick up English better, but that's the kind of the way it is here. Yeah, I was just talking to Artemio about that a few weeks ago about how he um, uh, he, he has two different channels and podcasts that are uh, specifically in Spanish because he wants to make sure that you know for all the kind of English gets defaulted to a lot around the world. So he wants yeah. to make sure to get all the Spanish-speaking cultures in that maybe they speak English, but it's not really their strong point. And um, my buddy Francisco is from Chile. He's the same way. He's got an awesome YouTube channel, and he does almost every one of his videos in Spanish as well. So yeah. I wish I was bilingual. I would do I would do it in as many languages as I could speak, just to you know, just to yeah. try to get more people on board. Because it's like you yeah, know, the, the retro game is too. pretty yeah. small. You know, we need as many people as we can get in it to keep keep it alive. So yeah. And actually, uh, I signed up for Twitter for the first time in June of this year. And the main reason I did that was not because Twitter's cool, but um, because my emails that I send to people in Japan uh, more than more likely than not get filtered out as spam just because they're not in Japanese. Wow, and, you I know, didn't I, know that. You know, I had I had my suspicions, you know, like a couple of years ago. Why is this guy never answering me? Uh, you know, Japanese friends or acquaintances. Um, and then I uh, met a few people, got their you know, business cards and email addresses and sent them messages and said, you know, and I never got a response. And so a month later, I I said, fuck this, I'm signing up for Twitter. I find the same people. And I said, hey, I sent you a message. Did you ever see it? And they said, no, I saw nothing. And I said, okay, check your spam folder. And a few people, a few Japanese people said, oh, yeah, it's in my spam folder. So basically, Japanese uh, spam folders think that foreign languages are spam. Um, Email uh, filters think that Japanese messages... Uh, sorry, Japanese email filters think that non-Japanese messages are probably spam, so I can't really communicate with people. And so fil- uh, Twitter is basically what I s- uh, signed up for to get access to the Japanese retro gaming and other world. So that's uh, you know that's c- kind of what I need. Uh, I need needed that just to do more bilingual communication. You know, email it, wasn't cutting it. It's funny because I'm you know I'm. I'm a social person. I'll talk to anybody. I love going out to the bars and just hanging out. But when it comes to social media, it just annoys me. You know, I don't want somebody showing a, a selfie that they're drinking a Powerade. Like, I don't I don't care. Yeah. But Twitter and the retro gaming scene has not only been fun, but really informative. People update yeah. you with the news on it. Like, uh, generally speaking, the people that like the stuff we do treat it like this really cool way to communicate and not annoy each other. Yeah, so it's, it's nice uh, to get the feedback. Um, yeah. Yeah. Uh, Twitter could make itself annoying in the future. You never know. Uh, 
it's all it all comes down to how many ads and other thing you know random things they put in there. But right, right now it's not so random. So the uh, the uh, signal to noise ratio is still pretty pretty high, mm-hmm. uh, and uh, people you uh, well people that share your common interests with you uh, they post cool messages and uh, yeah that is it is a pretty good medium mm. uh, between email and you know Facebook or something else yeah um, but you know um, for for long messages between friends I prefer email but that's kind of going the way of the dodo so Twitter is it for now <laughs> yeah yeah agreed yeah but but that is how I get news. And cool things in in Japanese, because there aren't really any other, um, you know, there aren't any news services that send out the news from Japan to the English speaking world, really, uh, not that I know of. And so that's kind of how I, yeah, that's how I got you know cool things that people are doing in Japan. Yeah, and also Artemio and other um, you know people from Spain are on Twitter as well. So mm-hmm. uh, it's not just you know the the English language web; it's multilingual. Right. Yeah. So um, one one kind of thing that I've always been wondering is, so a lot of the a lot of times I would say more often than not when when I discover a game that was in you know like the Japanese version of it so Zelda Doki Doki Panic a lot of the original yeah. Famicom games it's mostly eight bit there were a few that spilled into the sixteen bit era um, I'm kind of just fascinated by the changes and you know the Me way too, yeah. different. Is it, you know, do the Japanese retro gamers even give a shit? Are they like, yeah, yeah, it's the the dumbed-down American version, or is it equal of fascination to, wow, look at my game that I loved as a kid was different somewhere else, or is it just not even really paying attention to as much? Um, well, it, it's, it's a lopsided uh, system. People in Japan get way more than people in North America did in, mm-hmm. back in the retro days. So uh, the reason we're interested is, oh, my God, I, this never even came out here, or... We missed so much. We missed out so much, mm-hmm. and that's the opinion that probably North Americans have. People yeah. in Japan got all that, and so the thing that's different in America, ah, oh, okay, look what they can't have. That's kind of a little bit of the uh, the feeling. Um, there are people who I'm are right really, <laughs> yes, there are people who are really into uh, American games or Western games. Um, they, but that's very limited. They, you know, there are people who are just totally total obsessive fans over uh, football games, American football games. Really? Or wrestling games, yeah, yeah. There are people who are just crazy about that, and because they don't really come to North America, to Japan, they don't really come to Japan. That's kind of where they have to focus their attention. Um, but, but you know, even in the old uh, Famitsu and other video game magazines in Japan, they do point out what's different about NES or other Western games, with pictures of an English Dragon Warrior or Zelda, or like a different title screen. And usually, the news article is. Either hey wow look at this or it's huh, do you believe this and that's kind of the attitude that they have there so um, that's funny it's not the it's not the amazement that I have about Japanese games that are different to North American games uh, it's more like you know novelty hmm. yeah it's funny because it was a lot different in the music world I um a band I was in got to open for a big name band we played in front of like almost a thousand people it was awesome. And yeah. I got to talking to the guys afterwards, and they had, you know, they had toured, I think, China for the first time, but they'd been to uh, Japan a whole bunch of times. And I just asked them, like, look, man, I don't, I don't mean to, want to be a dick or anything, but you have a couple of songs that are phenomenal that are on the Japanese-only releases of your albums. And yeah. now, you know, now I could just download it, but as a kid, I had to spend, like, 50 bucks to import this thing from Japan. Like, why would you do that to your American audience? And he kind of laughed, and he was like, you know... 
it was a label decision, not ours, but it was mainly become because of the different culture things. So now in hindsight, we were sitting here lusting over some of the Japanese games, and they were saying, oh, we can't get this music in Japan. So they would do the, the special, they would import it from America. So the only way to get them to buy the actual Japanese copy was to offer them something that you couldn't get from America. So it was, yeah, yeah it's kind of neat how the, you know, the different, uh, it, the different things collide, the same attitudes, but from opposite ends of different things. So. Yeah, well, the, the music world is probably a lot different. Uh, and I don't know anything about it, really, but uh, it probably comes down to different tastes or what uh, uh, major uh, um, uh, music producers uh, think will sell in North America versus in Japan. Mm-hmm. And then maybe in Japan, things sell, uh, you know, there's less risk to, to putting out these bonus tracks or whatever. Um, but, um, anyway, cause I don't know anything about the music industry. So yeah, I can't it, it was it. just, you know, just looking back at this stuff, you know, it's kind of with, with the internet so instant the way it is, you know, a lot of people complain about what's been lost, but it just, it's really in a good way made the world smaller. You know, I could, yeah. you know, I could, I meet somebody through email and then six months later I say, Hey dude, can you pick up one of these copies of Zelda for me? And a month yeah. later I'm playing something I would have never been able to play before and, and vice versa, you know? So the same person might say, Hey, I heard about this band from New Jersey and I just email the album and it's just, I like yeah, it. Yeah, I like the, it a lot. Yeah. The internet has helped kill like the, well, it's, it's helped the battle against region locking and all that stuff. Yeah. Uh, Definitely can you can get almost anything you want uh, if if you know somebody or if you you can if you search online. Yeah, it's still yeah. weird that there's region locking of games though. I don't yep. really understand that. I don't understand the purpose anymore. Um, well, technically it can be done a lot easier nowadays than before. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, you know the 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 producer in whatever country will say, yeah yeah, flip that switch, lock it, lock it from other countries, just because it creates less headaches for them. Yeah, so you know it's easy for the the game publishers to do, and they they'll lose nothing if it's you know if they sell it only in the region they're intending to sell it to. So, you know, uh, they have nothing to lose to region lock. Uh, it creates bad will, but hey, you can't put dollar signs on bad will. True, true. Uh, by the way, so I was I was gonna say about you know like the American version of uh, games uh, on the for the PlayStation, there are a couple PlayStation games in Japan where they would release the sequel to something, and in the same CD case as the sequel, they had the original American version. So uh, Really? Yeah. Uh, so, for example, I think, maybe not Ridge Racer. Ridge Racer has a high-spec version, uh, Ridge Racer high-spec, uh, where it's the original game, but, you know, interlaced and stuff. And I think they have it has, like, a, the original disc as well, but the English version. Um, and I know that Tomb Raider 2, or 3, Tomb Raider 3, the Japanese version. Uh, I have the disc, and it also has the U.S. version of Tomb Raider One, the oh. English version. It's it's thrown in as a bonus, kind of. So with a few Japanese PlayStation games, they threw in a bonus disc with the American version of the the prequel, and so that you know it's that's kind of ties into getting the foreign version. I don't know why they did that. I think it's a cool idea, but, though. It's cool, yeah, yeah. So I think I have like an English version of Tomb Raider One hmm. that I bought in Japan, yeah. And it yeah. says, you know, Kai Gai Bon, the Japanese version, or foreign version or English version or something like that. Hmm. Yeah. I remember one of the biggest differences, I think, was the Splatterhouse games looked different on the PC mm-hmm. Engine. There was a couple of them that I really just thought. And then, um, I mean, obviously the Famicom expansion audio for all those games. But 
Yeah. I don't know. They're, I'm really glad that I get to experience a lot of these things now too, especially like in the original hardware with the Famicom and the Famicom disk system. But yeah. I never knew that the um, the PlayStation had some of the original releases as well. It's kind of cool. It's interesting, yeah. So, um, I don't know, we kind of downplayed a lot of the stuff you did. We uh, we talked a little bit about the Game Gear and about the music and about the, the Game Boy Advance stuff. And um, you're um, gonna give me You can edit this later, hopefully. No, I don't. I generally... The only podcast I've ever edited is... I think I was talking to Wes from Second Opinion Games, and we talked about a release date, and we both got it wrong. So I cut that Oops. part out. But that, other than that, it was it. People seem to... Either like it or just uh, if they don't, they drone out and not, you know, okay. <laughs> they're, they're pretty nice in the comments. But is there anything we forgot to talk about? Anything else that um, that you've been working on that you wanted to promote or anything? Because I mean, okay. you're, you know, I don't know if you realize, but a lot of times when you research RGB or a lot of these things, your name is one of the first that comes up. So whether I'm, you like it or not, you've been ingrained in the history of these things. So. Honestly, I'm quite surprised. <laughs> um, you know, people say, "Hey, I wanted to talk to you." I, I, I'm I'm kind of shocked. Like, why? Um, <laughs> Um, you know, the RGB thing kind of came out uh, out of old EGM magazines where they said, hey, look, you can hook up your Genesis to, to a Commodore monitor via RGB. And people were saying, oh, that's great, that's awesome. And that's kind of where the, the, the ball got rolling. Um, and when I got an Amiga, I tried doing that because the Amiga monitors did lots of different resolutions and uh, scan rates. Um, so... Um, In Japan, they actually have TVs. Actually, had an RGB connector. So, uh, was it a, uh, a JP21 connector? So yeah, it's Star a JP21 connector. Okay. Yeah. So, so for for a length of time, um, Japan had RGB, and the UK and Europe had RGB, and uh, Australia probably did. Oceania did, but mm-hmm. North America didn't really. And nope. so, yeah, that's kind of like uh, uh, why when I came to Japan, I oh great, an RGB monitor. Let's hook up all my old systems. How do you hook up all old systems? Here's how I did it, because I made a web page about that. And there you go, and at the time, you were probably one of the few crossovers that spoke English but understood what was coming from it, so... Yeah, Some of your posts were back from early 2000s, right? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Um, I I think I put up my my first web page back in, like, 1996, probably around 96, and I put, like, my Amiga fanboy stuff on there first, and then Famicom fanboy stuff up there, and then, well, it kept on going. When I started programming for the... NES, I put up my, my games I made or demos that I made. Uh, and then when I came to Japan, I tried doing art, Game Gear and Sega Master System programming. And then uh, uh, I went on to PC Engine programming, and that's kind of what I've been doing a lot more of in Japan. Hmm. Uh, yeah, so um, nothing to promote, really, but um, what I've been active most uh, during the last 10 years is doing kind of cool things with the... Uh, the Turbo Graphics or PC Engine. Um, I made a couple games, and they are kind of being sold on cartridge nowadays by somebody else. Um, and are they playable on ROM carts if people have the uh, Turbo Overdrive? Yeah, absolutely. They're they're free to download from my, my from my site um, as a ROM. Uh, mm-hmm. So if you have an EverDrive, you don't need to buy anything. Um, yeah, definitely give me links to all that stuff. Sure, I want to spread it around. Yeah, um, yeah. My my uh, web page is www.chrismcovell.com. And my YouTube channel is also www.chrismcovell.com. So the same thing, just no dots in there. Gotcha. And yeah, that's how people can find it. Awesome. Um, yeah, so in, you know, I, got, I got married uh, about nine years ago, so less free time. Uh, that's <laughs> kind of the reality. 
Uh, well, you've certainly made your mark, man, because I think you were the first to post info on the Game Gear stuff, and there's over 50 now. You were the the first to really post detailed info on the one of the innovation adapters, and now yeah. that, I think that page has had like 50,000 hits on my site. I, I credited you. I didn't steal your work or anything. I think I even emailed you about it. But like, yeah, yeah you, you did, uh, yeah. the first couple things that you that you really posted about it really laid the groundwork for what a lot of people are doing now. So. Really glad to come on and just kind of hang out and talk with you. And usually I have a beer in my hand, but I haven't been feeling well today, so I've just been powerating it today. <laughs> okay. So that's, uh, I appreciate it. What is it like? Uh, 8 a.m. there now? 9 a.m.? Um, it's almost 11 o'clock. Ah, there you go. So you will so not. I've got to head. Hands. <laughs> I've got to head off to. I've got to head off to work in like 10 minutes. So. All right, cool. Uh, well, thanks so much for doing this. I will post the links to all your stuff in the in the comments and everything. And good to finally put a, a face to all the posts I've been reading all these years. Yeah, my pleasure. Yeah, it was great to chat with you too. Cool. Well, uh, take care, man, and I'll see everybody else next week. Yeah, thank you.